millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Although God, the most high prince of war, often lets dark clouds cover his own, he still tends to them finally, gladdening them once again with the loving rays of his sun, and releasing the weather of wrath over the enemies of his church and common liberty. Frederick V of the Palatine, in a letter to Christian of Denmark, Autumn 1626. In 1624 greeted Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, with the news that his bitter enemy, Frederick V of the Palatinate, had been utterly defeated, and was now asking for peace. It had been a shaky start for the Emperor, and his success had been wrestled from the jaws of defeat by his trusty allies and Habsburg cousins the Spanish, while he had paid off his most other important ally, Maximilian, Duke of Bavaria. His allies had enabled him to first put down the Bohemian Rebellion, and then his allies struck again as they overran the Palatine lands Frederick called home by the end of 1623. In short, his victory was total. The only source of opposition could be found in the exile Frederick and his apparently hopeless schemes to orchestrate an international alliance against him, while the Dutch continued to suffer successive defeats against his Spanish ally on the continent. It is all too easy to present this narrative as the moment of Habsburg triumph, and to simplify this period of the Thirty Years' War accordingly. Geoffrey Parker warns against this approach, though. In his book, The Thirty Years' War, he writes, quote, Although it has become the convention in histories of the Thirty Years' War to examine the events of the 1620s mainly through the eyes of the defeated Protestants, such a view is both distorted and deceptive. It fails to take into account the patient labours of the victors to turn their temporary triumph into a permanent achievement, first in the conquered lands of the rebels, and later in the empire at large. It therefore also fails to explain how these activities, pursued for a full decade, eventually caused the isolation of the Habsburgs so that they could be decisively defeated. End quote. It is worth examining the behaviour of Ferdinand here, because it helps to explain this course outlined by Parker. 
headed events come to turn against the Habsburgs when victory was apparently assured in 1624. Perhaps part of the reason is how Ferdinand, acting as the victor, behaved towards his subjects once he had defeated their former king, Frederick, and re-established himself as their sovereign. Ferdinand, having been deposed as king of Bohemia and replaced by Frederick in 1619, was understandably annoyed at the Bohemians. But in exacting his revenge upon those responsible for the Bohemian Revolt, Ferdinand displayed the very characteristics he had sworn to restrain upon his original election as Bohemia's king in 1617. He ordered the arrest and execution of the ringleaders of the Bohemian Revolt, an act which was pointed to as an example of his intolerance by Frederick, while he then knuckled down and began to plan the religious and cultural reorientation of Bohemia. The lands of those who had participated in the rebellion, or in some cases of those who had simply fled from the violence, were confiscated and quickly sold off by the housework administration to raise badly needed funds. This whole enterprise of confiscation, selling the land and resettling loyal Habsburg citizens, was undertaken with minimal organisational practice. Very little records have been kept of the transfers, which makes it nearly impossible to calculate what the full value of the actual lands were. An example of this chaotic state of affairs in Bohemia is given by G. Pages in his book The Thirty Years' War, 1618-1648. Quote, The Baron von Trotzmendorf, a councillor of state, bought an estate valued at 300,000 florins. He obtained it for a reduced price of 200,000, and to enable him to make the purchase, he received 60,000 florins as a gift, and 105,000 florins in the form of a loan from the emperor. Thus, he only paid 35,000 florins for a property worth almost 10 times as much. End quote. This was an example of the overall economic chaos that had been created by the years of disorganisation from rebellion, then leadership under a new sovereign, and now the reoccupation by the Habsburg family. Geoffrey Parker explains that, quote, the first consequences of Ferdinand II's victory over his rebels, to be felt by most ordinary people, was the complete collapse of the currency. It began, like the revolt itself, in Bohemia. Even under the government of the estates, the coinage of Bohemia had been debased in order to make the same amount of silver go further. But the scale of the operations was modest in comparison with the next regime, headed by Ferdinand's lieutenant, Karl von Liechtenstein. During the year 1621, a 25% devaluation took place. But this too was modest in comparison with 1622. On the 18th of January that year, a contract was signed between the Imperial Treasury and a consortium of 15 prominent subjects of Ferdinand who agreed to lease the mints of Bohemia, Moravia and Lower Austria and to control the coinage for one year. The consortium managed to destroy Bohemian economy totally within its brief period of office. A debasement of 90% was affected, which made it impossible to exchange the consortium's money, called long coins, outside the Habsburg lands. End quote. The political reorganisation went hand in hand with the economic chaos. But for now at least, Ferdinand established Bohemia's crown as a hereditary asset of the Habsburgs. Its assembly's ratification of the candidate for the country's crown was no longer required and the king had complete power now to select all high officials. The courts of Bohemia lost their independence too, and were now subject to the laws of the emperor, while a new element was added to the regional assembly to further neuter its influence, that of the Catholic clergy, who were ensured to be fully loyal to the Habsburg interest. 
Lobkovich, if you can remember him from episode 25.3 as one of the most important Habsburg agents in Bohemia, was now able to realise his plan for centralising the once proud kingdom under Habsburg rule by removing the regional importance of the towns and placing all authority under a single Habsburg legislature operating from Prague. Religious persecution soon followed the Habsburg hegemony over Bohemia. In October 1622, the order was given to Liechtenstein to expel the Protestant ministers from Bohemia. Subsequently, G. Pages tells us, quote, From 1623, the persecution spread to the Lutheran townspeople and peasants. Protestants of any faith no longer had the right to hold funerals or baptisms in according with their beliefs, and were excluded from public office. All the successive measures which had been taken against them were finally codified in the Edict of the 24th of July 1624, thereby exposing them to the full force of the law. As for the Catholic Church, it was reorganised by the Jesuits and the Capuchins, and replaced the heretical churches throughout the kingdom. The old Hussite Bohemia became one of the most Catholic countries in Europe, and Czech civilization was impregnated with Catholicism. End quote. Those in the know would surely have recognised that Ferdinand's actions in Bohemia looked eerily similar to his actions in Styria while he had been its governor. Though Ferdinand did not heed the advice of his Jesuit confessors as closely as he could have done, or gone as far as they advised him to, the general consensus is that this was more because he did not want to upset his Saxon Protestant ally John George, rather than from any inherent desire to restrain himself. While he continued to mould Bohemia in his own image then, Ferdinand also acted to isolate Frederick further with all the tools at his disposal, first issuing the imperial ban against him and his small pool of allies in January 1621. G. Pages enlightens us as to Ferdinand's struggle during this process. Quote, Ferdinand had hesitated before passing sentence because he foresaw the consequences clearly enough but he was bound by the talks he had held with Maximilian of Bavaria in Munich in 1619, on the eve of the imperial election. The promise of the title of elector and the right to occupy the Upper Palatinate, which bordered Bavaria, had been the secret price of the Catholic's intervention against the heretics of Bohemia and the usurper of the crown. Although the emperor feared the increase in power and prestige, which the elevation to the electorate would bring to the Wittelsbach family, he had to keep his word especially as the Bavarian troops had already occupied the Upper Palatinate and Upper Austria as collateral. Moreover, Ferdinand's conscience was constantly being prompted by his intimates, the Jesuits and Capuchins of Vienna, not to mention the Pope's special envoy, Father Hyacinth. The difficulties in putting this plan into action still remained to be resolved. End quote. Ferdinand attempted to impress upon the other princes and potentates of the empire the need to move ahead with his plans for Bohemia and the Palatine, specifically in a meeting in Regensburg in January 1623, but he was largely unsuccessful at convincing the Protestant princes in Brandenburg and Saxony. John George of Saxony was especially concerned because he had got word both of the controversial treatment of Bohemia's Protestants and of the capture by Ernst of Mansfield of the secret correspondence between Father Hyacinth and Ferdinand, essentially informing Hyacinth within that correspondence that Maximilian of Bavaria had already been invested in secret with the Palatine title and lands. To John George of Saxony, the existence of this group of letters proved that the agreement between Ferdinand and Max had in fact been conducted in secret a long time before it was brought to their attention, and indeed before Ferdinand even had appealed for their approval. To John George, it would have seemed as though Ferdi and Max were in cahoots all along. 
Even despite his misgivings, though, and the misgivings of his fellow Protestant elector, George William of Brandenburg, Ferdinand got his approval for the changing of the electoral order, and the replacement within the Palatine of Frederick with Maximilian. G. Pages explains that, quote, The Elector Palatine's deposition and the transfer of the electoral title to the Duke of Bavaria marked the triumph of the Catholic cause. This triumph was celebrated in Munich with lavish feasts and in Rome with a ceremony. To Deum in St. Peter's, but no Protestant prince was present in the investiture ceremony. Those who had more or less come out in support of the Palatine began to fear for themselves. Would they not too be in turn banished from the empire? At the same time, secularised lands were returned to the church in accordance with the Catholic interpretation of the Peace of Augsburg, and Catholic canons were introduced into the chapters where Protestants had acquired a majority. It became increasingly obvious with every passing day that the Roman Church, which dictated Ferdinand's decisions, would not allow him to restore peace to the Empire. End quote. Though this is perhaps an oversimplified view of who's to blame for the continuation of the war, remember Frederick showed no signs of stopping his anti-Habsburg activities until his cause appeared entirely doomed in late 1623, Ferdinand should be upheld as one who could have really made the difference had the desire for peace on his part been genuine. Compromise was what was needed in order for the Holy Roman Empire to effectively gel. Its various religious and domestic components depended on a level of live and let live within each prince's lands. But Ferdinand continued to act as though the lands were all his own. His deals with Max seriously discredited his reputation and honour in the eyes of John George of Saxony while his pursuing of a uniform religious policy in Bohemia suggested to the rest of the empire that, if Ferdinand did in fact decide to send his forces against them, their religious freedoms would be the price of defeat. This emerging consensus and fear of Ferdinand's designs on their lands and freedoms cannot be overstated, but there is also the risk of presenting Ferdinand as the bull-headed religious fundamentalist who didn't understand the way the empire had been run for the past 200 plus years. Yet, at the same time, there is strong evidence to suggest that Ferdinand would establish Catholicism as the sole religious denomination within the Empire if he had the opportunity and means to do so. However, Ferdinand could do nothing without his allies, and in this critical hour, 1624, though it may have appeared as the hour of victory to Ferdinand, he needed his allies more than ever. Maximilian of Bavaria and John George of Saxony, both of whose cooperation had been essential in ensuring the rapid collapse of the Hemian Palatine regime, had by 1623 achieved all they had initially desired. Max had acquired the Palatine, and its electoral powers by way of imperial law, since the approval of the Regensburg meeting in February 1623 had established it so. Meanwhile, he also occupied Upper Austria as a way of ensuring his costs were covered until his paymaster Ferdinand could cough up the Florins. He was staunchly Catholic like Ferdinand, but he balked at the continuation of the war once he had gotten his prizes, because he believed it merely played into the hands of the Spanish. Ferdinand began to become concerned that, having gotten all he wanted, the Wittelsbach elector would turn on him and revive the ancient jealousy that had once characterised the Habsburg and Wittelsbach family lines. Ferdinand had sacrificed much to remain in Max's good graces. Not just physically, but his reputation had suffered too as a result of the secret deals that had been so scandalously and joyfully revealed by Frederick and his allies. These revelations had also damaged John George of Saxony's relationship with Ferdinand, and cast serious doubts on the continuation of their alliance into the future. 
John George, like Max, had gotten what he wanted in the occupation of Lusatia, and it was doubtful that he would simply stand by while Ferdy rampaged over the religious freedoms of the Protestants. The bad press alone would have made future Habsburg cooperation intolerable. Thus, it was only upon Spain that Ferdinand could truly rely. Though no doubt concerned at the overstretching of his kingdom and empire, Philip IV of Spain recognised the critical question of inter-Habsburg aid, though for one author, the issue of Spanish aid contained a far more cynical motive for Philip and his strategic interests. G. Pages states, quote, Only Spain remained. In her, the emperor had a faithful ally, precisely because she was fighting as much for herself as for him. But this could be a danger as well as an advantage. In 1621, the Twelve Years' Truce, which Philip III had concluded with the Dutch Republic in 1609, expired. War flared up again on the frontiers of the Low Countries. Thereafter, Philip was concerned chiefly with assuring the passage of Spain's troops along the Rhine, from the Duchy of Milan to Luxembourg. That was why the King of Spain had willingly authorised Spaniola to occupy the fortified towns of the Palatinate. But under the circumstances, all he was offering Vienna was a diversion of the eastern frontier of the empire and not cooperation between Madrid and Vienna. And yet, because he felt he was the stronger, the King of Spain wanted to direct operations. We shall see the consequences of this. End quote. Spain had excelled since the resumption of war with the Dutch, and the success against their enemy of the past five decades gave the new king, Philip IV, a wealth of confidence, just as their cousins were extinguishing the last sources of opposition from Central Europe. It appeared as though the German war was won, and Spain's new foreign minister and favourite of the king, Olivares, was endeavouring to represent Spain with a newfound strength on the continent. Olivares came to the forefront of Spanish politics in 1622, and soon made his presence felt, persuading Philip IV as to the need to inject Spanish garrisons along the left bank of the Rhine, to the north of Alsace, which was Spanish-owned and had been raided by Ernst of Mansfield. Olivares reckoned that there was also a need to occupy fortress towns further south into Alsace itself, since this would ensure Spain had a safe passage between Franche Comte and the Low Countries. Not only was this highly beneficial to Spain's prospects in the Dutch War, but it also surrounded France with a series of tough Spanish nuts that would have taken much effort, resources, organisation and time to crack. Olivares believed that in order to achieve this strategic coup, the success of Ferdinand would have to occur, and to ensure that success, he recommended to his sovereign the increased support to the Emperor. But Olivares seemed to have missed the critical point at this time. If Ferdinand continued to push north and alarm both Calvinists and Protestants alike with his policies and successes, and if Spain in conjunction with this penetrated further into the empire than it ever had before, then surely the response from the rest of Europe would be a hostile one. It was a gamble that Olivares was willing to take, that by enriching himself with these new conquests and ensuring the success of Ferdinand, the combined weight of the Habsburgs would be able to fend off the concerned challenge of its rivals. But Olivares did not have as complete a grasp of the empire's complexities as he liked to think, and just as the expansion into the empire was ongoing, so too were plans for Spanish successes in northern Italy. The latter irked France, but as we saw last time, the former irked another man, Christian IV of Denmark, and his campaigns would occupy, or at the very least distract Ferdinand from implementing what he upheld as the fruits of victory against the forces who were opposed to him in the empire. Once the Danish distraction was over though, Ferdinand settled into what was his primary goal, 
the religious reorientation of the Holy Roman Empire. Geoffrey Parker gives a good account of how Ferdinand made the decision to alter the religious balance of the empire, changing the dynamic of the Thirty Years' War in the process. Quote, the operation was planned at Mulhausen in the autumn of 1627, when the electors met to discuss the implications of their defeat of Denmark. The emperor's envoy to the meeting was instructed to say that, after nine years of war, the time had come to reconsider the religious state of Germany, and in particular the restoration of church lands illegally taken from the Catholics. This, according to Ferdinand, was the great fruit and gain of the war, on which he had his eye and he assured the Catholic party of Mulhausen, who clamoured for some action, that, just as up to now, we have never thought to let pass any chance to secure the restitution of the church lands, neither do we intend, now or in the future, to have to bear the responsibility before posterity of having neglected or failed to exploit even the least opportunity. End quote. Months passed after Mulhausen without any action being taken but the seed had been planted in the minds of the Catholic electors, so that a campaign of pressure was soon mounted against Ferdinand to act and put his words into practice. An interesting fact, since though he certainly would have needed little persuading, it is surprising to see that Ferdinand restrained himself at all in these years. It was of course mostly due to the strain placed on the empire by the Danish war that prevented Ferdinand from fully implementing his planned religious reforms. And yet, in the previous years, he had seen exactly what would happen if the proposed Edict of Restitution was passed. Ferdinand had been given a prequel as to the opposition that would face his policies, when he tried to implement his policies on a smaller scale in the Upper Austrian lands. A long-running policy of persecution in the Bavarian-occupied lands of Upper Austria, occupied by Max of Bavaria as a means for Ferdinand to pay the immense debt he owed to Max, contributed to open revolt in early 1626. To understand the revolt, we must backtrack a bit to the fall of Frederick's allies in the months before Frederick himself lost the Battle of White Mountain in November 1620. One of those allies was the Estates, or Regional Assemblies, and the forces under their control, situated in Upper Austria. I was initially shocked that Protestant forces and opinion should be so close to Ferdinand's base of operations. Then I remembered it had been the same case in Ferdinand's homeland until his governorship of Styria, essentially Inner Austria, from 1595, had expelled Protestants from those lands and ensured their future loyalty. Of course, Ferdinand hadn't been the simultaneous governor of Upper Austria, so those lands continued to inhabit a healthy community of Protestants. Healthy enough, as it turned out, for them to side with Frederick's cause. Owing to their proximity as well as similar opinions, the Upper Austrian estates were a major thorn in the side and in fact quite a danger to Ferdinand in the early years of the Bohemian Revolt. And this danger was only quashed when Max of Bavaria was authorised to command an army and lead it against the Habsburg's enemies. After putting down the rebellion in Upper Austria, Max left behind at least 5,000 men to occupy the province, using local taxes to augment their pay packets. In 1621, Ferdinand upheld Max's right to occupy the region as a pledge, until Max's war expenses had been repaid. Ferdinand granted Max the right to levy awful taxes on the lands he occupied, which also include part of the Palatine, so as to pay back his war expenses faster. 
In the Palatine, this arrangement worked quite well, mainly because Frederick was outlawed from it, and the region only had to answer to Max. But in Upper Austria, a conflict of interest emerged, because Ferdinand was the technical overlord of the region, and yet Max was occupying it and doing so in his approval. To Max, Austria was a vital revenue stream from which his army could be paid. Thus, he wished to keep the region peaceful and prosperous, enabling the money to keep flowing in without any problems. Ferdinand, however, was not interested in the money Upper Austria provided, because it was momentarily in the hands of Max. He was instead interested in the loyalty of the area's subjects. He ordered Max to purge the region of heretics and traitors, and, as the region's territorial prince, he felt such action was within his right. But this placed Max in something of a quandary, because he knew that implementing the policies that were designed to persecute its inhabitants would perhaps evoke opposition that would have to be neutralised at additional cost. Max thus protested to Ferdinand, but was in the end forced to relent, and on October 1624, the governor of the Bavarian-occupied lands, Adam von Herberstoff, ordered the expulsion of all Protestant pastors and school teachers, as well as allowing Catholic creditors to foreclosure on Protestants so as to force the resale of their property. Geoffrey Parker continues his narrative of the next phase of this policy. Quote, In October 1625, the government created a Reformation Commission charged with recovering all secularised church lands and endowments, and it was decreed that, by Easter 1626, residents of the duchy must either attend Catholic worship or leave. Only the nobles were spared, they were allowed up to 50 years to convert. End quote. Just as he had done in Styria and then in Bohemia, Ferdinand was attempting to alter the religious balance in an area under his control. Though Max occupied it, he was under the obligation to heed the advice of his emperor. Nobody pressured Ferdinand to act against the Protestant population here. No electors complained that the Upper Austrian estates hadn't been punished hard enough for their show of disloyalty against the Holy Roman Empire. Max of Bavaria was perfectly happy, as a staunch Catholic himself, to rule the majority Protestant area, because he understood what would happen if the once rebellious lands were provoked again, and he believed it wasn't worth it. Ironically, by pursuing these policies, Ferdinand claimed, for the sake of ensuring the region's loyalty, he instead provoked such a ferocious rebellion involving not just Protestant peasants sick of persecution, but also Catholic residents weary of harsh taxation, that the entire land-sharing enterprise between himself and Maximilian almost collapsed. In 1625, the Congregation for the Propagation of the Faith was established in Rome by Pope Gregory XV to derive maximum Catholic benefit from Habsburg victories. This congregation provided the spiritual apparatus and church agents by which Ferdinand could put his plans into practice. Italian priests in their hundreds descended out of the Alps into the religiously reorganised regions of Bohemia and Upper Austria from that point on, and provided these new lands with a severe boost. Nonetheless, progress was slow for Ferdinand, and there was much local opposition to the sudden appearance of foreign Catholic priests in place of Protestant churches, as anyone would have expected. Parker explains the consequences of this slow progress. Quote, Under pressure from Ferdinand, Governor Herberstoff decided to make an example of one area. The men of several parishes were removed for their unruly and disrespectful behaviour towards the new priests. Then Herberstoff accused them of causing the overall troubles of the region and ordered the immediate execution of 17 of them, chosen by lot. End quote. 
This was the final straw. At the beginning of 1626, a small revolt began, composed mainly of Protestant lay officers, commanded by the charismatic Stephen Fadinger. Soon, Fadinger's revolt had succeeded in expelling Bavarian and Imperial forces from Upper Austria, and the Habsburg forces, still smarting from this embarrassment, could not prevent Fadinger's forces from defeating an army led by Herberstoff in May 1626, and then laying siege to Linz, the administrative capital of the region. What is notable about this revolt, coming just as Wallenstein and Tilly were coordinating their campaigns against Denmark, was the seething anger of those that participated in it. Since 1621, the citizens of Upper Austria had been forced to endure Ferdinand's mismanagement of the region, which saw the currency collapse in line with the Bohemian currency between 1622 and 1623. Then, they had been subjected to stringent religious laws which infringed upon their religious beliefs. Had their leader, Fadinger, not been killed in the trenches of the Siege of Linz in July 1626, and had they been successful in their seeking of foreign aid, the rebels of Upper Austria could have seriously endangered Ferdinand's cosy setup with Bavaria. In the end, it took 20,000 troops and much expense to defeat the rebels and their ensuing guerrilla campaign, while the deaths of so many peasants thereafter contributed to the desolation and poverty of the region for many years to come. Thus, Ferdinand had succeeded in transforming what had once been a prosperous and comfortable part of the empire, and Habsburg hereditary lands no less, into a wasteland, all for the purpose of his religious policies. The inhabitants, shocked from their deflating experiences of the previous years, that involved nothing but ruin and war against the man who was meant to have their interests at heart, were nonetheless pacified, and the region soon became as docile and religiously uniform as Ferdinand desired. The price of this endeavour had been the depression of the region. The ire of Maximilian, who now had to scrape the barrel to extract the taxes owed to him in the region, and the further indebtedness of Ferdinand. Ferdinand, like the Romans, had made a desert. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And called it peace. Most surprising, though, was that, having seen how unpopular and vociferous opposition to these kinds of policies were on even a small scale, Ferdinand went ahead with his plans to implement similar ones on an even larger empire-wide scale in the form of the Edict of Restitution. Why was the opposition from the Protestants so non-existent, or at the very least so slow in coming, was the question on my mind. In the five years since the Battle of White Mountain, Ferdinand had steamrolled the opposition and been able to count on the support of his policies within the Empire. The main reason for this was the cooperation of the Elector of Saxony, John George, with Ferdinand since the beginning of the revolt and the fact that even though he had been granted the land promised to him by Ferdinand, he still remained committed to the Emperor's cause. Despite Ferdinand's iffy religious and toleration records, John George continued to advise against opposing the Emperor. In particular, when Christian of Denmark began to plan his campaign, John sent out numerous letters to the Lower Saxon Circle telling them that they were wrong to oppose the Emperor. Of particular note was the correspondence between John George and Christian IV of Denmark, which Geoffrey Parker describes. Quote, In a lengthy argument, John George accused his co-religionist, King Christian IV of Denmark, of foreign aggression, and his fellow Germans, Christian of Brunwerk and the Duke of Saxe-Weimar, who had joined the Danes, of treason. He argued that Ferdinand was waging a just war against rebels, and not a religious war of conquest, that fears of Spanish Habsburg domination over Germany were crude exaggeration, that the conspiracy theory of a Jesuit reconversion of Lutherans was disproved by Ferdinand's moderate actions. This was in 1626. And that Luther's injunction to obey the powers that be still applied to Ferdinand, since he had offered no cause for resistance. What the Emperor chose to do in Austria and Bohemia, according to John George, was covered by the Cuius Regio, Eius Religio principle. Podcast footnote. This principle is one you may remember from one of my earlier episodes. Roughly translated, it means, whose land, his religion. And what that meant was that, whatever the religion of the elector or prince, etc., was in the lands in question, the religion of that ruler's citizens had to reflect this. And he could implement his own policies to ensure that it did so if he wished. This was a law established in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg but obviously only made sense if both parties' religious persuasions were established over time, and not if a ruler was suddenly changed for one of a different religious persuasion, as had occurred in Bohemia and the Palatine. As we have seen, though, this little dose of realism within policy never seems to have been ingested by either Ferdinand or, in this case, John George of Saxony. End podcast footnote. And, as if all that were not enough, the elector even claimed that Tilly was a patriotic general, defending loyal Germans against the Danes and the Dutch-paid freebooters of Mansfield, and that the Army of the League should therefore be supported by all Lutherans in a concerted campaign for peace, justice, and obedience in the Empire. End quote. Saxony's argument amounted to a highly conservative plea for unity shrouded in xenophobia, pacifism, legalism, and a general desire to simply hope against hope that the situation would not escalate. 
John George did not count on the character of Ferdinand II, though, because from this point onwards, Saxony's relationship with the Emperor goes into a period of tense decline, due to that precise escalation which John George had hoped to avoid by simply doing as the Emperor asked. John George was only just willing to accept the Habsburg policy, only just willing to ignore the presence of Spanish and Bavarian forces in former Palatine lands, only just willing to tolerate Ferdinand's repression of Bohemia and the Palatine's religious rights, only just willing to accept that the constitution of the HRE had been compromised because of Ferdinand's need to bribe his allies and ensure the triumph of his Catholic cause. John George of Saxony was not willing to watch Ferdinand tear down his religious brethren on an empire-wide basis, and he was utterly unprepared, almost embarrassingly so, for Ferdinand's ultimate show of intolerance, militarism, and dogmatism in the Edict of Restitution. The Edict of Restitution was finally committed to paper at the behest of the Catholic electors and at the approval of Ferdinand on March 28, 1629. Its consequences, while Wallenstein's forces were wrapping up the last legs of the victorious Danish campaign, will now be examined. There are a number of definitions that should be examined first, that had been created as principles and laws in the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, so you understand what it all means as we go. The principle of Cuis Regio, Eus Religio, whose land his religion, meant that the religion of elector's lands, remember, those seven, had to be the same as his religious disposition. Okay, that's fine and dandy, you may be thinking. It meant that you had the emergence of essentially Protestant and Catholic and then Calvinist states within the HRE, depending on who that ruler was. The principle only applied to those men who happened to rule their hereditary lands, though, and even then, they didn't have to act accordingly. For example, the elector of Brandenburg was a Calvinist, but he didn't try to convert his Lutheran population to his denomination. The purpose of whose land his religion is thus a bit tricky to understand, but it had a lot to do with who was the elector or ruler or prince etc, and who was the emperor at the time. The elector of Brandenburg, let's stick with this example for the mo, could have decreed that, by way of his legal right, as set down in the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, that he was setting Brandenburg up to be a Calvinist state. This would have been tremendously stupid, of course, because the Lutheran population would never have agreed to it, and it would have likely usurped him. But still, he technically was in his right to do so. I hope that makes sense. Another example of this was when Frederick V, Calvinist elector of the Palatine, acquired the Bohemian crown, and the citizens of Bohemia, which were religiously diverse anyway, had some concerns that Freddie would try to implement the whose land his religion in Bohemia. He then assured them that they had no reason to fear, and his royal progress in early 1620 was a good example of a ruler publicly forsaking that religious principle in favour of order, and because he knew that to implement it would have been next to impossible. Within this progress, Frederick even cozied up to Anabaptists, the religious outcasts of the time, and in the process showed that he valued religious toleration and its benefits above enforcing religious uniformity. The impression I get is that, over the years, this principle becomes harder to physically implement because of the spread organically of different denominations within the empire. Technically then, Ferdinand was within his right to re-Catholicize Bohemia, since he was Catholic, in case you didn't know, 
But the point was that even the Habsburgs before Ferdi had recognised the headache that would surely have resulted from implementing that principle on a place like Bohemia. Thus, we can see that a. the principle of whose land his religion only worked in certain circumstances and that b. it was becoming a tad outdated anyway, thanks to the religious spread occurring across the empire. Remember, it only applied to the seven VIPs of the empire who ruled definitively over their electoral lands. I hope that all makes sense, so let's now look at the other key law, established in the Peace of Augsburg the equally ugly-sounding Reservatum Ecclesiasticum. This little nugget was placed into the Peace of Augsburg by Imperial Decree, and essentially meant that, unlike the law we already encountered whereby the hereditary ruler of his people had the right to enforce a uniform religious denomination, at least in theory within his lands, if you were a Catholic prince-bishop ruling an archbishopric, and you converted to Lutheranism, the people who lived in the lands you ruled over did not legally have to convert to Lutheranism. In fact, you had to give up your position to a Catholic. What this was designed to do was restrict the spread of Lutheranism among Catholic lands, since it was believed that, as long as the bishop or what have you was Catholic and ruled over a Catholic populace, then that populace would remain Catholic, or at the very least slow the organic spread of Protestantism there. This gets a bit fiddly though when you examine Prince Bishops and the like, who essentially were men of the church that owned sufficient land to be considered nobility at the same time, which gave them the kind of benefits that nobility would have, such as seats in the local assembly. Imagine this then, Mr. X rules the Archbishopric of A. He's a Catholic until one day he converts to Calvinism. The fact that a Calvinist was sitting in a seat originally appointed by Catholic clergy and bearing a papal term was odd, but not unheard of though the most important thing was the land that Mr. X owned. He wasn't just a man of the church, he was also a territorial prince, however small his territory, and the lands he owned, Archbishopric A, however insignificant in size or wealth etc, even if he had acquired them with his own money when he was a Catholic, were now his no longer because of the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum law. Mr. X, by this law, has to give up everything he has acquired. And now, Mr. Y, a Catholic, gets his lands and title, while Mr. X has to go home to his family. The reason why it's so complicated is because you had so many prince bishops floating around, who existed mainly because wealthy families, and sometimes even royalty, sent their kids into the church with some land already in their back pocket, as a way of advancing their careers. Another reason why it's so complicated is that, like whose land his religion, it really depended on the emperor if the law was implemented at all. The Protestants opposed the Reservatum Ecclesiasticum consistently, but the reality was that it was even harder to implement than whose land his religion, so that hundreds of Catholic prince bishops and such had converted to a Protestant sect since 1555 and they hadn't been replaced by a Catholic, meaning that, in Catholic eyes at least, the process of decatholicization was accelerated in the Empire's lands. So imagine then, that Mr. X didn't have to abdicate after all, since the emperor or local authorities at the time weren't too bothered. So Archbishop Breguet loses its Catholic ruler, and has gained a Calvinist one instead. Mr. X then starts to replace his seat of rule with Calvinists, and starts to hold Calvinist, as well as Catholic services in the churches. Then he orders the construction of a solely Calvinist church, 
Then word spreads that Mr. X is a Calvinist, and Calvinists begin to move into Archbishop Breguet, sponsored by Mr. X, who believes in aiding his religious brethren. Well, you can see where this is going, but this is essentially what happened with loads of Mr. X's who were never properly opposed with the terms of Reservatum Ecclesiasticum, ensuring the spread of other denominations in places like Austria, right next to the Habsburgs, which you'd assume would be staunchly Catholic. A laissez-faire attitude had developed and then been cultivated throughout the empire in many respects since 1555, with the result that anyone who actually tried to implement Reservatum Ecclesiasticum was met with a storm of boos and hisses and dissuaded from actually acting at all. When the Prince Bishop converted and became a Protestant, he also cut all ties of the Catholic Church to that territory. This process was called secularization, and when you hear of Ferdinand wanting to reverse these processes, to desecularize or reclaim the land, it essentially means that he wants to take back this land from whoever secularized it and return it to the Catholic Church. So do you follow me so far? But why are these two terms important, and why have I spent the last few minutes explaining them to you? It's because, by understanding them, you'll be able to see why the Edict of Restitution was such a big deal. Essentially, the Edict stated that Ferdinand was going to go back in time, and basically desecularize the lands that had been lost to previous years, not upholding the two 1555 principles. Ferdinand wanted to reverse what 70 years of allowing Augsburg to lapse had achieved. He wanted to do this forcibly, misunderstanding the fact that the Empire had survived just fine in that three quarters of a century, and believing that doing all this somehow wouldn't draw the ire of every single Protestant individual in the Empire. Everything that had happened since 1555 was null and void. If you were a Protestant living on land that had belonged to the Catholic Church in 1555, then you were in the wrong place and had to move away or convert. The result was the large-scale deprivation of lands from their contemporary rulers and the restoration of them to the Catholic Church. It was a messy, costly and time-consuming business. However, David Milland, in his book, Europe at War, 1600-1650, judged that the edict was, quote, a triumph not only for the Counter-Reformation but also for the Emperor, since it was he who had issued it, and, without reference to any other authority, he declared that its interpretation was a matter reserved almost exclusively for his own judgment, and empowered his commissioners to enforce their decisions with the full aid of the Imperial Army. End quote. The cost was certainly greater in hindsight, though. German princes, seeing their religious freedoms extinguished and their lands confiscated, could do nothing because Wallenstein and his army of 100 plus thousand men were being used to enforce the edict. Thus, they pressured Wallenstein's enemy, Max of Bavaria, to lead the case against Wallenstein and remove him and his army from the empire. This had further knock-on effects, though. Ferdinand, now receiving almost daily calls for Wallenstein's dismissal due to the campaign against him, could not receive support for his son to succeed him unless Wallenstein was dealt with first. Ferdinand could not act against the entirety of public opinion. The Elector of Mainz, Anselm Casimir von Vambold, spoke out against Wallenstein in the meeting of the Catholic League in Mergentheim, saying, since the Duke of Freeland has up to now disgusted and offended to the utmost nearly each and every territorial ruler in the Empire, and, although the present situation has moved him to be more cautious, he has not given up his plans to retain Mecklenburg by virtue of his imperial command. 
Ferdinand, who wanted his son approved for election as his successor, had to agree to release Wallenstein from service. By September, Imperial envoys had been sent to Wallenstein, informing him that his services were no longer required, and the Imperial command passed Attili's much smaller army of 35,000. We will examine in more detail Wallenstein's dismissal and his incredible level of power just as he was dismissed in the next episode, 25.6, but for now, it is time to move on from Ferdinand and examine the situation elsewhere. fall of Breda in mid-1625, one could be forgiven for thinking that the best course of action for the Dutch was surrender. Having fought the Spanish for the better part of 60 years by this stage though, the Dutch Republic had turned snatching victory from the jaws of defeat into an art form, and the hope was that the other Protestant allies in Europe, such as the Danes, could be relied upon for help, while the added cooperation of the English, on side since Charles took over from his dad, was also expected to tip the balance. The resumed Anglo-Dutch alliance that had proved so beneficial in the past didn't take off as it had before though, since its first real attempt to fight back at Spain, seen in the raid on Cadiz in November 1625, was a crushing failure for the beleaguered Dutch and frustrated English. The successes of Wallenstein and the distractions of English foreign policy, which led it to make war against France for the sake of the Huguenots in 1627, detracted from the joint goals of the two Protestant allies, who clearly needed each other. Charles I though, having foolishly expended his resources against superior French forces, retreated out of the wars on the continent and out of our focus into domestic problems by 1630. Having promised so much initially to his Dutch ally, Charles's withdrawing from world affairs may have suggested a further nail in the coffin for the Dutch war effort, but times were changing. Though the brief period of hostility between France and England brought Spain and France closer together, Parker explains that this alliance, quote, was never easy. There was opposition in Madrid, where one of Philip's councillors warned that there was nothing in theology which obliges your majesty to send his armed forces against heretics everywhere, and there was much suspicion in Paris of Spain's motives, end quote. Due to the differing domestic policies of France and England, Charles did find it difficult during the early years of Franco-English agreement to gain public support especially when English ships were seen to blockade Protestant Huguenot interests. A campaign against the French was the brainchild of George Villers, the Duke of Buckingham, the Prime Minister and favourite of Charles at the time. Though it is clear from the sources of the time that this brainchild was nowhere near grown up enough or ready to be realised. The unfortunate Huguenots, informed that English support was ongoing, rose up in rebellion in March 1627 but were let down three times by English attempts to relieve the city from French encirclement. The uprising of La Rochelle had given Cardinal Richelieu the excuse he needed to finally remove the threat posed by the Huguenots to a coherent French policy. In the years before, he had sided with the Catholic Devots in order to isolate the Huguenot influences, 
and planned to follow up the fall of La Rochelle with a U-turn against Catholic extremism, which he successfully achieved by the end of 1628. The fall of La Rochelle, occurring after the historically significant city surrendered to the French government on October 28, 1628, signalled that France was finally able to act in its full capacity. Richelieu was able to make sure that French policy would shed the inconsistent image it had acquired over the previous years, and face down fully the tide of Habsburg victory in Europe, starting with Spain. The cogs for total European war had begun to turn, just as England began its slow descent into civil war. Specifically, it was the erroneous decision of Count de Lavares, assuming too early that the Dutch situation was under control, and seeing also the trouble occurring in Spain's other important regions, that tipped the balance solidly in favour of the United Provinces. In December 1627, the male line of the Gonzaga family died out, leaving the considerable territories of Montferrat, Mantua, and its lands in northern Italy without a direct heir. Claimants were easy to locate, and one in particular had the Habsburg seal of approval, but the key problem was that another candidate was in play, this one favoured by a France that had just settled its debts, so to speak, and now focused its full attention on expanding its influence in Italy while also making its first concrete moves against Spain. The ability of France to now pay attention abroad may have been underestimated by Spain, but as David Milan notes, quote, the most immediate opportunity for intervention existed in Montferrat, where Cordoba was hoping for a quick victory at Casal. Brushing aside the resistance of Charles Emmanuel of Savoy, Richelieu forced the pass of Susa in December 1628 and received the surrender of Turin. From there, he sent reinforcements down the Po Valley to Casal, which put new heart into the garrison. The intended coup from Cordoba was thus thwarted and a major campaign set in motion." End quote. Casal was a huge, imposing fortress situated strategically in Montferrat. Montferrat was a geographical location, not necessarily constituting an actual province. Sort of like the way New England isn't a state, but if someone mentions it, you know what it is, where it is, and what's in it. Montferrat straddled northern Italy and was, and still is, known for its prosperous vineyards and other exceptional produce. The Spanish didn't want the region for that though, they wanted it for purely political reasons. Jeff Mortimer, in his book Wallenstein, The Enigma of the Thirty Years' War, notes that even Wallenstein recognised the illegitimate nature of the Spanish Habsburg claim. Quote, Wallenstein had told the council and the Spanish ambassador that, if they wanted to wage war against Mantua and the Duke of Nevers, they should not let the thought enter their heads that they would get a single soldier from him, even if the Emperor himself had gave the order. It would be an unjust war, as all the laws in the world supported Nevers. Wallenstein benefited from lands taken from others, both in Mecklenburg and Bohemia, but the dispossessed were undeniably rebels, however dubious and vindictive the actions of the Emperor. Nevers was not a rebel, and the legal grounds invoked for action against him provided scarcely a fig leaf to cover the expropriation of his property for naked political reasons. Wallenstein also feared, quite correctly, that a Spanish attack in the region would bring a French response, and that imperial support for Spain would renew French hostility towards the empire. End quote. Wallenstein would prove correct on all these predictions, 
but its disobedience and delaying tactics in sending troops to Italy were empty gestures. Ferdinand was determined to support Philip IV in his ventures, even if this meant sacrificing perhaps the best chance in 1629 for the Habsburgs to combine their forces and strike at the Netherlands. Critically for the Dutch, French intervention in Italy forced Olivares to make a choice between the army of Flanders or the army of Italy. Spain could not support both. Seeing Italy as the priority, Spain detached more and more men to go south from the army of Flanders and fight against the French expansion. Almost at the same time, a Dutch naval triumph in the Americas over the 7th to 8th of September 1628 saw Piet Hain, the Dutch admiral and privateer, capture a Spanish treasure fleet worth three million pounds. The first and last Dutchman ever to oversee the capture of a Spanish treasure fleet, Haines' action ensured that the Dutch could fund their army without any worries for at least eight months, while the Dutch East India Company could report a profit of over 50%. Hain returned to the Netherlands a hero in 1629, while the Dutch, now under the leadership of the new stadtholder Frederick Henry, sallied forward to besiege the important Habsburg town of Zahertigenbosch, just as Spain was filing for bankruptcy. Spaniola, seeing the situation in bleak terms, and himself under the command of the army in Italy after Cordoba's dismissal, appealed to Philip IV for greater investment in the Dutch war, or else a peace be arranged before his years of hard work were overcome by Dutch might. Philip of Spain, ironically, called upon Ferdinand II to act, and Ferdi answered the call by sending 10,000 imperial troops into the heart of the Netherlands. But before they got there, Olivares persuaded Philip that they were needed more urgently for the siege of Casal in Montferrat, and so they did a U-turn and went south. Thus, while the army of Flanders was reduced to 35,000 men for 1629 as a consequence of the Italian war, the Dutch army ballooned in size, numbering at least 100,000 men and enabling Frederick Henry to launch offensives never before imagined possible in previous years. All this at a time when Spain was at breaking point. Sensing this, Spaniola forced three proposals for peace in the Dutch Republic. Geoffrey Parker explains the effects of this. Quote, after agonised debate, the Council of State, under the influence of Spaniola and against the wishes of Olivares, authorised the Archduchess Isabella in Brussels to reach an agreement with the Dutch, so that the war in Italy could be given priority. The consequences of this decision were as Olivares feared. The Republic, perceiving Spain's new weakness in the north, lost any immediate interest in a peace settlement, while the loyal provinces of the South Netherlands, desperately war-weary and demoralised by a string of defeats, came within an ace of revolt. End quote. The Dutch then launched a surprise attack on the Spanish supply base town of Wiesel in August 1629, capturing it and neutering any plans of the Spanish, who advanced into the Dutch heartland in the hopes of forcing an end to the siege, to respond militarily. Once the Spanish force withdrew from the Dutch heartland, Sir again Bosch surrendered on the 14th of September that year. It meant that, by the end of 1629, the Dutch had effectively punched a hole through the Spanish line of forts that protected their Netherlands, while the Dutch possessed numerical and financial superiority. The Dutch situation had been changed utterly in just a few short years. Frederick Henry had regained control over the Republic and stabilised it after its shaky months following the Siege of Breda. 
Strengthened from this position of victory, Frederick Henry pursued a more active and involved foreign policy, first ridding the Spanish from the German lands immediately below the Republic, and then informing the prolific Frenchman, Cardinal Richelieu, that the Dutch Republic was open for business. Richelieu, having only recently overseen the invasion of Montferrat and witnessed the fraying of the Spanish response, replied enthusiastically to the Dutch requests for alliance. First, Richelieu claimed there was a piece of diplomacy that they must conduct together. To the east, the Polish king Sigismund III was looking for an out in his war against Sweden that had dragged his country down from its perch at the top of the Central European food chain and exhausted its resources. The time had come, Richelieu believed, to broker a peace between the two kingdoms and free up Swedish attention once and for all. The time had come to invite Gustavus Adolphus into the Holy Roman Empire. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed this extended look at the years 1625 to 1630. And I hope you agree that it worked better dividing the period into two episodes. Simply too much happens to cover at once, and then we can move on confidently to the next definitive phase of the conflict. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.55, The End of the 1620s, part 2. Thanks! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.